0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, November the 15th, 2023. It is currently 2.16 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, we are about to begin a journey into a sermon review, and I have strong feelings that this is going to be probably somewhat controversial, probably going to make some people upset. I I just, I I have a feeling. Now, remember, when we do sermon reviews, I don't listen to them first. But because of the name of the person associated with this, let me just give you the name. We're going to listen to a sermon by Douglas Wilson. By Douglas Wilson. That that name should kind of, I don't know, should spark a little bit of like, oh, Douglas Wilson. Oh, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Why are you going to do that? Douglas Wilson is a conservative, reformed, and evangelical theologian and pastor at Christ Church and Moscow, Idaho. He is known for, well, a lot of things, but you may know him specifically for the federal vision. The federal vision. Are, are you familiar with that? The federal vision, All right? Let me just read. Um, Wilson's views on covenant theology have caused some controversy as a part of the federal vision theology Partly because of its perceived similarity to the new perspective on Paul, which Wilson does not fully endorse, though he has praised some tenets. The Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States declared his views on the subject to have the effect of destroying the Reformed faith. That's, that's pretty serious. Having the effect of destroying the reformed faith. So whether you are a fan of Douglas Wilson or maybe you're not a fan, maybe you have no clue. Maybe you know about the federal vision. Maybe you have no clue about the federal vision. I am, I am sure that we're going to find something in here that's going to create a little bit of controversy. I, I just, I just feel that that's the case. I could be wrong. I'm hoping, I'm hoping. That I am completely wrong, but the email basically said, hey, here's someone's take. Now, they connect this individual with Christian nationalism. That would require an entire discussion there. But they say, here's someone very much connected with Christian nationalism in their mind. I'll state it that way. And here's his take on law and gospel. So we have possibly someone associated with Christian nationalism, someone who's definitively connected with the federal vision, and yet they're going to talk about law and gospel. Oh, this just seems like we're putting all the recipes on the stove that's going to simply cook up a major, major controversial sermon. And I and I, I place this as part one because there's just I don't think there's any way we're going to get through this and and one In one episode, I don't think so. So, if for some reason I have to, I am going to commit myself to finishing this tonight. So, if this, if I know we're not going to get through this in part one, I'm hoping I can do it in two parts. So, what I will probably do is maybe this evening after I return home from church tonight. After preaching at church, I will come home, take a few minutes, and then, and then turn on the microphone and try to finish this up. I am hoping I can. But I think before we do anything, I don't know if this is going to be, I don't know if this is going to be beneficial, but before we listen to Douglas Wilson, he's going to be preaching a sermon on Galatians 2.16. Before we look at the text, before we do anything, since he is associated with federal, the federal vision, let's at least get a basic idea of the federal vision. Now, I will agree. I think, mo- I, well, I don't know if everyone would say this. At least I feel, may- maybe, so let me let me state this in a, in a correct way. I feel that trying to clearly outline the tenets of the federal vision, I think sometimes can be difficult because it seems as soon as you say, this is what f- the federal vision teaches, immediately someone will say, you misrepresent it, you misrepresent it. So I, I'm always a little gun shy. To talk about it. I have talked about it on the podcast a few times. I've je- definitely challenged my listeners to be familiar with the federal vision, at least enough that you could identify its basic tenets if they start showing up in your church, right? Especially if you go to a reformed church, because I think it would be most likely show up there than I think in other churches. I could be wrong. Maybe it would show up in other churches more likely. But, 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 um, at least you should know about it. anytime there's a kind of a new development within theology that's beginning to grow or spread, it's your responsibility to know what it is, know whether it's right or wrong, and be able to identify it in case it shows up in your church, right? I mean, that's that's kind of your responsibility. Remember, as non-Catholics, that responsibility falls to you as the individual because you're the one who's supposed to be judging the preaching, whether it's true or false. You take on all of that responsibility for yourself. You have to be able to identify if the church is turning theologically. You're, you have to kind of be the magisterium. You're supposed to be the authority and you're supposed to be the one saying true or false and right and wrong. And I, I think a lot of times we don't understand all of the responsibility coming with basically claiming the church doesn't have the authority, but we do. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. So you really need to know these different uh, perspectives. So I'm going to try to take and just look at a couple of the basic elements of federal vision according to at least one source. And by no means am I saying this is dogmatically 1,000% accurate, Because I don't want those who hold to the federal vision to go, you're misrepresenting. I'm saying here's some basic elements, according to some sources, do further research so that you can be more dogmatic when it comes to the federal vision. But you need to know that it's out there. And I think we need to be, well, very cautious of it. Here is how one source states it. The Federal Vision is a theological system that has gained attention and discussion within certain Reformed Christian circles. It emerged in the late 20th century and emphasizes various theological concepts and ideas. While it may be challenging to summarize the entire system, here are some of the basic, basic principles associated with Federal Vision. All right, so let's just, these are some basic principles that seem to be associated within federal vision. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're talking about dispensationalism, covenant theology, millennialism, premillennialism. Remember, it's always hard sometimes to cover every variation, every, you know, even preterist. It doesn't matter. There's always these like Extreme, moderate, liberal—you know, conservative kind. There, there's always these variations, and so, and then of course, then individuals can do whatever they want at that point. So it's always hard because as soon as you start articulating something, someone will say you're misrepresenting, and I don't want to do that. I have no desire to do that. I what I'm trying to do is give us maybe somewhat of a theological framework in which to review a sermon by Douglas Wilson, we, if we have a little bit of his theological background, then maybe we'll be better equipped to interpret or to analyze or to critique what he's about to preach. Because we want to be fair. We want we want to accurately represent. Whenever we do sermon reviews, the goal here is not to pick a sermon that I know is bad. When we do sermon reviews, it's the goal is to pick a sermon I haven't even heard, And we try to do so in real time. In this particular case, I I prefer sometimes not even to know the name. I prefer not to even know. It's like, la, la, la. I don't know anything. So then we can really go into it trying to figure it out. In this case... When you open up the email and it's like, here's a sermon from Douglas Wilson. I'm sorry. That brings along a lot of theological luggage. All right. (laughs) And that brings a lot. All right. That's a, that's, you're going to have to check that luggage in, sir. That's, that's too big for a carry on. There's just too much here. All right. So are you ready? Here are some of the basic tenets, basic principles associated with federal vision. Number one, covenant theology. The federal vision places a strong emphasis on covenant theology. It understands God's relationship with humanity as being established and maintained through covenants, including the covenants of work and grace. It sees the covenantal relationship as central to understanding salvation and the church. Now, we know within Christianity, there are those who hold the covenantal theology, and there are those who do not. And that's a very clear divide within Christianity. There is no way... There's no way to get around that. There's a very clear divide between those two. Very clear divide. So, um, I don't approach things from a covenantal theolo- theological perspective. I don't know if this is going to present a problem in doing this sermon review, but just full disclosure, transparency for you as we listen. If you hold a covenantal theology, what we're about to hear, maybe you're going to be like, I agree, I agree. Or I may be like, I don't agree, I don't agree. And I've done lots of teaching on covenantal theology, and we I could tell all so much about everything there, but yeah, all right. Number two, cor- corporate solidarity. So number 1, covenant theology, number 2, corporate solidarity. The federal vision emphasizes the concept of corporate solidarity, meaning that individuals are not viewed solely as isolated individuals, but as part of a larger community. This perspective influences their understanding of salvation and the role of the church. And we've been talking a little bit about things related to that, right? Remember we we did the article, we read the article about dechurching. And then there was basically, hey, if you walk away from the church, you walk away from Christ, you have to have the church in order to have Christ. If you don't have the church as your mother, you don't have Christ or God as your father. Remember we dealt with that controversy? Well, this seems to possibly federal vision may emphasize the role of the church. Right? Maybe, possibly. Number three, sacramental theology. The federal vision places a significant emphasis on the sacraments, particularly baptism and the Lord's Supper. They view these sacraments as means of grace through which God imparts spiritual blessings and nurtures the faith of believers. So sacramental, believing in them as being a means of grace. Obviously, I am not sacramental. I do not believe in a sacramental system. I reject a sacramental system completely outright. I was sacramental when I was Lutheran, but I left that system, and now I would hold to what we refer to as ordinances. These things were ordained by Christ for us to participate in, and they symbolize or memorialize something that occurred, that that they are pointing to something. Other than being a means of grace. Now, once you start beholding to say baptism as a means of grace, you probably are going to walk into some form of baptismal regeneration, which I absolutely reject. All right. So just so we already know that that he's obviously going to be coming at things from a very different uh, point. Now, this one is the big one. Justification and sanctification. The federal vision seeks to emphasize the inseparable connection between justification being declared righteous before God and sanctification, the process of growing in holiness and conformity to Christ. They reject any notion of a dichotomy between faith and works and emphasizes the ongoing transformation of believers. So this probably, this seems to me, at least just reading it, from the outside. This seems to be telling me Federal Vision would emphasize strongly, if you are justified, you will be sanctified. And the proof of your justification is your sanctification. Well, that seems to me to be speaking of a justification that somehow involves an infused righteousness and not an imputed righteousness. Because an imputed righteousness cannot be judged by what someone does or doesn't do because it's imputed. It's accredited to your account. It doesn't change you. It declares you legally to be holy, perfect, and righteous, even though you clearly are not perfect, holy, or righteous, nor will you ever truly be. But when you link these two inseparably together then what you basically do is you judge one's justification on the evidence of one's sanctification. The key is no one can ever seem to indicate exactly how much sanctification is needed to prove someone's justification. Because to be just before a holy God declares demands perfect righteousness, which is internal and external. So if you're going to judge justification by sanctification, the sanctification would have to be perfect in order to judge a justification. But nobody ever seems to... Take that into consideration, and it leads to all kinds of problems. Next, election and the visible church. The Federal Vision challenges traditional Reformed understanding of the doctrine of election. They argue for a more expansive understanding of the visible church, including both elect and non-elect members. They emphasize the importance of active participation in the life of the church for all members. It seems there's a big emphasis on the church, the church, the church, the church. Now, that, that could be good. That could be bad. All right. Number six, critique of individualistic piety. The Federal Vision critiques an individualistic approach to piety and faith. They emphasize the communal nature of the Christian life, highlighting the importance of the church community in nurturing and sustaining faith. So this is going to be community, the church, community, the church, community, the church, community, the church. Now, I'm not saying others could not emphasize those things, but this seems to be at least maybe more inclined to the federal vision. Now, I guarantee you, you will emphasize the communal nature in the church if you connect the church church and participation in the church with one salvation. Then, yeah, that could be... Any church that does. Any church that basically says if you walk away from the church, you walk away from Christ. You must have the church in order to have salvation. Well, then you're going to basically say your, your salvation is dependent upon your involvement within the church. That, that could lead to, well, lots of issues. All right. Then it says it is important to note that the federal vision has generated much debate and discussion within reform circles with both proponents and critics offering various perspectives on its theological implications. Now, that is the theological system, which I most associate with Douglas Wilson. If I hear Douglas Wilson, I immediately think Federal Vision. I immediately think Moscow, Idaho. That, that, those are what I immediately think. That's what I immediately think. You may connect him with other issues because he's he's been involved. I mean, there's been lots of controversy surrounding him. So you may connect him with other things. I just want to know kind of a how some of that could show up. If this is about Galatians 2.16, I believe it's Galatians 2.16. Let me look at my Bible really quick. I may have to pull up the sermon on my iPad to make sure we're going to be looking at the right passage. I believe it's Galatians 2.16 that he's going to be approaching in this sermon. Yes, Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So this is going to fit perfectly in our long gospel series, I have a feeling. So are you ready? If they merge, if they connect justification and sanctification that closely together, what are they going to do with law and gospel? Are they going to obliterate the law or obliterate the gospel? I, I think when you merge justification and sanctification together, you obliterate the gospel is what I think. But we'll see. We'll see. Are you ready? That's that's. I'm sorry about hitting the microphone there. That's uh, 18 minutes of introduction. Meaning we don't have a lot of time for review, but let's go through this. So this is a sermon sent to me by an emailer. So if you don't like anything I do today, blame the emailer. He's the one who sent this to me. I I won't give his name, but he's the one who sent this to me. And I'm going to do my very best. Remember, I haven't listened to the sermon in advance. Here's all I've done. I listened to it, thought the volume was too low, opened up Audacity, did a amplification of it, still was too low, did a second amplification. I think this is like amplification number three. So hopefully this one, it's still not really loud. I probably should have done amplification number four, but hopefully it'll be beneficial, helpful, and I hope you're ready, ready to take good notes. Let's go to Idaho. Who says that? Nobody says that. Who says that? Who goes to Idaho? Nobody goes to Idaho. I guess a lot of people go to Moscow, Idaho, because he obviously has a much more influential, bigger, more powerful church than I'll ever be a part of. So let's at least see what was going on on this particular day. Here we go.
1: The text this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. These are the words of God. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this word before us now. I pray that you would open our hearts just as our Bibles are opened. I pray that your spirit would work in us and show us the way of obedience and application. And I pray that, you, that we would be enabled to see that trust, faith, is the way of obedience. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the law of God is like math. The law of God is like math. It doesn't care about anybody's feelings. The answer's right or it's wrong, and it doesn't matter um, how that makes you feel. It is straight and hard and cold and altogether righteous. It doesn't bend. When you're doing a math problem, there's one right answer, and there are an infinite number of wrong answers. And that one right answer doesn't care what you feel about all the how invested you are in the wrong answer that you had spent so much time on. At the same time, when this cold, very cold law is resurrected in the body of Christ back from the darkness of the tomb, it comes to us as burning love. So when this cold law comes back from the grave in the body of Christ, it comes to us and we experience it, we believers experience it as burning love. And that's why I am preaching cold law and hot gospel. This is the way we experience it. Cold law and hot gospel. So this passage. Okay.
0: It feels like – now, this is just me just from the very start. He's jumping into this kind of like everyone there kind of knows what he's referencing, right? He's just kind of jumping in using this terminology that, that okay, I do agree the law is like math. It does not care about our feelings. I completely agree with that. It does not care how I think about it, feel about it. It's God's law. This is right. This is wrong. Doesn't matter how, how sincere you may be. You're either right or you're wrong. I completely agree. But he says when the law comes back from its, like, I think he said dark tomb, it comes back in the body of Christ as burning love. So when the law returns in the body of Christ, it comes as burning love. Are, is he saying that when you become a Christian, the law returns to you and it no longer condemns you? It no longer reveals your inadequacy, your sin, and your constant need of the gospel? He's saying, does the law return? And you're like, Oh, this is burning love because now I can do it. Is that, is that the direction he's going? We can do it. Now I know that's common teaching. Forget federal vision. Forget reform people. This is just basically Christianity 101. We can keep the law. We can obey God. We can stop sinning. We love to say that. And then we sin. And we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we sin. So you have to start pretending that you really don't because the reality is you do. And again, I, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there really quick. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as he is holy. right right? You're finished. You don't do those things. And if you think you do, well, then you're delusional so now in Christ I do all of those things in practice I strive I want to love God with my ho- my heart body and soul I want to love my neighbor and myself and I would love to be holy as God is holy but I'm telling you that's not happening it's true positionally it will be true in glorification it will never occur not even within a million miles of it in life now I, I, so what does he mean that it comes back? I don't know let's I, let's see I'm trying to anticipate. I'm trying to anticipate, but that's the, that's the fun of the sermon reviews, right? You hear me anticipate and then five minutes later, I'm like, okay, never mind. I just spent 10 minutes talking about something <laughs> that has nothing to do. But that's the hard part in the sermon. I can't, I'm not here just to play it. I'm here to analyze it and critique it. So, and really, I'm just here to, to, uh, respond to it. So if I was listening to it, that's where my mind immediately would be going. My mind right now would be like, what does he mean? It comes back from the dead as burning love. Like, that sounds poetic, but what does that mean? Well, let's find out.
1: This passage from Galatians 2 comes in the context of Paul's rebuke of Peter at Antioch. You remember that Peter was eating with the Gentiles and and was um, having open table fellowship with them until certain men from Jerusalem came, men from James, who were uh, they were get out over their skis. They weren't, repre- they weren't representing James very well, but they were representing a, a, a particular contingent in the Jerusalem church, and that contingent was saying that Gentiles have to become Jews if they want to become Christians. If you want to become a Christian, you can come to Jesus, but you have to come through the Torah. You have to accept circumcision. You have to bind yourself to the entire law, and then you may follow Jesus. Well, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, contrary to that sentiment. But when certain men uh, showed up from Jerusalem, Peter then withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And Paul saw that this was a fundamental compromise of the gospel. Some people would look at it and say, well, it was just about seating arrangements at the church potluck, but it wasn't seating arrangements at the church potluck. Paul saw that the gospel itself was at stake because if you introduce that kind of division of first class Christians and second class Christians in the body of Christ, you are not recognizing the body of Christ. And if you're not recognizing the body of Christ, then you're you're dividing Christ, and if you're dividing Christ, you're denying the gospel. So Paul saw that this was hypocrisy, and so he challenged Peter, he confronted Peter to his face, and this is something he says in the course of that confrontation. He either said this to Peter, or he's summarizing afterward the sentiment that he expressed to Peter. Paul says that we know that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. A man cannot be justified by the works of the law. If we know that, then it's imperative that we act as though we know it. If we know that man cannot be justified by the law, then it is imperative that we act as though that is true. We must act as though we know what we confess we know. Peter knew that truth. But he had started to wobble in his actions concerning it. Peter knew and understood the gospel. He knew and understood the truth. He knew the truth, but he wasn't acting in line with the truth. So we are justified, Paul says, by the faith of Jesus Christ. We are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ and not by our own works. Now, there's a, there is a debate among interpreters as to whether this is referring to the faith of Jesus Christ, that as in his faith, the faith of Jesus, or faith in Jesus Christ, as in our faith in his obedience.
0: Okay, he's offering some good context. It's a confrontation between Paul and Peter, demonstrating that even Peter, as an apostle, as a believer... With the Holy Spirit still could be doing things wrong and, and handling things wrong and doing things wrong and committing a sin and treating people in an incorrect way. I mean, it just, once again, just demonstrates that no matter how, doesn't matter who you are, sin shows up in our lives. And even Paul constantly talks about things he wants to do, he doesn't do. Oh, we can go on and on. All right. I, I'm glad he is mentioning this. There is debate amongst scholars. This is 100% correct because the King James says, but by the faith of Christ, is it by by the faith of Christ that I'm saved or by faith in Christ. Exactly how do we understand that? Yeah, much. I agree. There's many, there's lots of different opinions on that. Once again, that's the way it always works with almost every verse in the Bible. We'll see which direction he goes. All right. Let, so far. All right. I'm 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 following along. I'm still trying to figure out what he means when the law comes back into the body of Christ. It's burning love. I'm, I'm still trying to get there, but let's let him work through it. That's kind of, maybe that was kind of him throwing out a basic his basic thesis, and now he's going to work through this. I don't know. Let, let's see how he structures this and puts it together.
1: Now, I'm not intending to go into that right now, although I believe it's the faith of Jesus Christ. We are justified by his faith, his, his obedience, his belief is what justifies us. And when I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm trusting in his obedience. I'm trusting in his faith. So I am trusting in him. But if you take it the other way, It amounts to the same thing. So if you simply trust in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus. If you have faith in the faith of Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus. It amounts to the same thing. So we are justified by Christ. We are justified by Christ and not by our own labors. We have believed in Jesus so that we might be justified not by the works of the law, Justification through our own efforts is nothing but a pious pipe dream. Justification through our own doing, our own thinking, our own devising, our own anything is nothing but a pious pipe dream. And there's a a sneaky thing here. Not only are we not justified by our own devising, our own doctrines, our own achievements, we are not justified by our own understanding of justification by faith alone. All right? If you, th- you 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 are justified by Christ, there are people who are kind of muddled on justification by faith alone, but Christ is saving them because Christ is the one who saves. And there are people who could pass the justification by faith alone portion of their theology exam, who are trusting in their right answer to that exam. And if they're trusting in their right answer to that exam, they are, there's a discrepancy between what they're saying and what they're actually doing. We are justified when we actually trust jesus we are justified when we actually give ourselves to him surrender to him completely we are not all right see what just happened
0: we are justified by faith we're justified when we surrender to him completely whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. where did that just come in Where did all of a sudden I am justified by surrendering to him completely? Where is that in the text? Where is it in the text? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have, we, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And he just subtly threw in when we surrender everything to wait, wait, no, 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 no. If my justification is dependent on my complete surrender to Christ, then I'm going to hell because no one is completely surrendered to Christ unless you mean I've completely surrendered any hope in being justified by what I do. In other words, I've surrendered the ability to trust in what I do and I'm completely trusting in him. You've got to define what you mean by surrender. I mean, you just added something there. We always seem to want to quantify it and qualify it, don't we? We always want to be like, you're justified by faith. I mean, but, 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 but you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do, I mean, you're justified by faith, but you have to surrender. What do you mean surrender? What do you mean by surrender? Uh, You just subtly added into the text something that is not even mentioned at all. Let's see where this goes. Now I'm getting a little worried
1: not justified when we say the right words. Right? right. We're not justified when we say the right words. Remember the parable that Jesus told of, of the rich man, uh, not the rich, excuse me, the, the Pharisee and the publican who went down to the temple to pray. And the publican said, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm a mess. So he goes down to the temple and he says, I'm just a mess. Be merciful. And the other says, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Now what what the pharisee is saying there is doctrinally accurate it's one of the five solas of the reformation soli deo gloria i thank thee god that i'm not like these other schmucks right so i'm not i tithe i i fast twice
0: how is that sola de
1: gloria how is that
0: accurate that i'm not like these other schmucks what are you talking about yes you are (laughs) You're, you're so I and now I'm getting his preaching style is hard to follow. He's just moving a hundred miles per second and it's like whoa 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 I, okay, so you said we're justified by faith. Then you said that well we have to surrender. Then you say, well, it's justified by faith is not this or this or this. And then he uses this parable where the the, the publican is like, hey, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this or this, anything that he's somehow correct. No, that's the problem. He's not correct. He's trusting in his own righteousness and that righteousness is not sufficient because guess what? He is those things in some way, shape or form. He doesn't recognize his sin. He doesn't see his sin. He is those things in some way, shape, or form. You're telling me that he was still logically correct to say that the whole problem is he was trusting in his own righteousness. I guarantee you his righteousness wasn't as righteous as he thought it was. Because even our righteousness, even our good works are but filthy rags before a holy God.
1: twice a week I do all this good stuff and Jesus says this man who said all of these true things he did all the, the right things and he thanked God that he had done all the right things and Jesus says he went home unjustified he went home unjustified because he was saying the right words and he was trusting in his mouthing of the right words you have to your your life your heart
0: Wait, can we go to the text? He didn't go home justified because he was trusting in his own righteousness, right? Or am I completely messing up the story? All right, this is always the problem when you just grab in a sermon, you just start referencing another text and you don't actually go there. All right, okay, I'm gonna go with the publican. Okay, here we go. Where is this story? Um. Where is the story? Okay, is it Luke 18? Is it Luke 18? There may be a maybe a, may a cross reference here. Let's go to Luke 18. He's, he's trying to use the story for his own purpose here. Luke 18, verse 9. Right? Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He Literally, it starts out with this whole point of this parable is he's speaking to those who trust in themselves that they are righteous while despising other people. Or if you're despising other people, you're not righteous. So all the things this person is about to say is not completely true. Two men went up into a temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. I'll go to the next page. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee, that I'm not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I gather tithes of all that I possess. The publican standing afar off would not even lift so much his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself shall be a base and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So the one was trusting in his own righteousness, right? I mean, that was the whole point here, thinking that he was righteous. That he he humble, he exalted himself. Clearly, pride. He, he demonstrating pride. He, I I don't I don't get where he just well. He, all the words he said were true. The problem is he just had the right words, but he didn't have the right what. No he he wasn't trusting in the righteousness of God. He was trusting in his own righteousness. He, he did not see his own righteousness. He did not see his own sin. He did not see his own shortcomings. Nobody will want, nobody will rely on the righteousness of Christ until they have become despairing of their own righteousness. You will never grab onto and hold onto the righteousness of Christ until you become broken and despairing and realize the hopelessness and helplessness of your own.
1: Heart has to match the words. When you say, be merciful to me, a sinner, you can't say, oh, you better, I better ape the publican and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a a, a sinner. Well, if you say that, if your lips approach God, but your heart is far from him, it doesn't do any good. It's it's the heart that trusts in Christ.
0: Oh boy, here we go, here we go, here we go. All right. I I know what that sounds so good. Hey, it's not just what your mouth says; it's what your heart says. So your heart has to be right. You realize this just leads to perpetual doubt. So, is my heart really right? Is my heart really trusting in Christ? Like it just leads to doubt. I I, I hate what we we feel like we always have to add nine hundred qualifiers to the gospel. Okay, you're justified by faith, but 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 you have to surrender. You have to have more than the right answer. You got to have more than the right words. You also have to have your heart right. Well, okay. How do I know? Like, can you just tell people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Trust in his righteousness? Like, we always have to add all of these qualifiers to try to somehow, I don't know, create doubt, I think. But maybe he's about to clarify this and it's all going to make sense.
1: And the the mouth and the heart, everything has to line up. It's got to be genuine trust in Christ. Now, I've said that the law is... The law is cold, hard, rigid, unyielding. But we have to understand that there are different applications of the law. God is one, and this means that his word is unified. God is one, so his word is one. But his unified word can have multiple applications. One word can be applied in different ways. His law is one, but there are at least three crucial applications.
0: Someone in chat just said it will not make sense. Oh, come on now. Lee, ye, ye. Of little Lee, ye of little faith, ye of little. Come on, don't be so jaded and don't be so, you know, just negative. I mean, we have demonstrated over and over that every time we do a sermon review, it turns out so perfect and it makes so much sense and there's always complete harmony and agreement. I mean, it, it always goes so well. How could you just give up so quickly? I mean, we're only a few few minutes into this sermon. It's going to make perfect sense. By the time we are done, we are going to understand justification. We're going to understand the law. We're going to understand sanctification better than we have ever understood it in our lives. Before this is over, we'll be singing kumbaya. We'll be having a Coke, a smile. It's going to be rainbows and skittles. Life is going to be wonderful. There's going to be harmony and agreement, and we will all be one. I tried, I I tried. I really did try, but I'm gonna be hopeful. I'm gonna be hopeful. I'm gonna be hopeful. Here we go.
1: And in Reformed theology, we are accustomed to speak of the threefold use of the law. There's a threefold use of the law. There's only one law, but the law can be applied. The law can be plugged in. The law law can be uh, uh, projected onto or applied to different situations. The threefold use of the law. The first use is one that I think most evangelicals are very familiar with. The first use of the law is to make us aware of our need for salvation. Romans three twenty, Romans four, fifteen, Romans five uh, thirteen, seven, seven through eleven, Galatians three, nineteen through twenty four. In this application, the law is impossible to keep. The first use of the law re- puts a spotlight on our inability.
0: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, I'm getting nervous. In this application, the law is impossible to keep. Seemingly to imply that there's going to be an application where we do possess said ability. Oh, boy. 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 Okay, I do like the fact that he's going to talk about the three different applications of the law. That's great. I get nervous when you say the first application is the one we can't keep. So at first, we cannot keep the law. That's seemingly to imply he's about to say we can. And once that happens, well, then, ladies and gentlemen, start queuing up the sound of a train wreck because it started. All right. Uh, So I... Because I, oh boy, I'm going to, I I don't want to, I don't want to jump the gun. I'm I'm going to be positive. Remember I said, this is all going to turn out great. This is going to be perfect. It's going to be rainbows, skittles, unicorns, singing songs, happy, happy, kumbaya, Coke, smile, whatever else, whatever else makes you happy. Okay. All right, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So according to him, the first use of the law shows us our need of Christ and this shows us our inability to keep it. I I now I'm I'm complete agreement with this. Whenever I see God's law, though, that that, I think the difference here is I believe that's always the case. Whenever I see the law, I see my inability. Whenever I see the law, I see my inability. Whenever I see the law, I see my inability. Let's see if He's going to tell me that that somehow magically changes
1: we can't be good we must be good and we can't be good the law tells us we must be good and when the law puts a spotlight on how we're actually doing and telling us that we must be good it highlights the fact that we're nowhere close to being good and so this is what this this uh, first use of the law is what's happening when the rich young ruler uh comes to uh comes to jesus and says what good thing must i do right what what thing must I? How how much harder must I pedal in order to get to heaven? How much harder must I strive in order to get to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus applied, gives a, gives him the first use of the law. He says, "Well, you've read the commandments. Do, keep the commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. Do everything we just heard sung to us this morning. Do all that. You'll be fine. Be totally great." And the rich young ruler said, "But I've done all this from my youth." And they've had this exchange, and they itemized several of the commandments. It's interesting that in the exchange between the rich young ruler and Christ, the 10th commandment was not mentioned, right? The 10th commandment, the prohibition of covetousness, the one heart attitude commandment is not mentioned. And and the rich young ruler said, well, I still, uh, you know, I still have, I'm missing something. I've, I've kept all these commandments from my youth, but I'm still missing something. And Jesus says, oh, I, I've got it. Give all your stuff away and, uh, to the poor and come follow me, which is a requirement that nails him on the 10th commandment. And he went away sad because he had much many possessions. He went away sad. Now, uh. I happen to believe this is uh, not something that I don't, think any, I don't think anybody should go to the stake uh, for this. But I think that that rich young ruler was John Mark himself. All right? So in the Gospels, this, this account is given. And in the Gospel of Mark alone, it says Jesus looked on him and loved him. Jesus looked on him and loved him and gave him the first use of the law. Go do this. Go do this. So uh, I've, I've been carrying these bricks around my whole life, and I'm doing a pretty good job, but I would still like to know how to attain eternal life. So Jesus opens up his backpack and drops a couple of anvils in it. That's the first use of the law. The first use of the law makes us aware that we cannot be good enough. We cannot come anywhere close to being good enough. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law I'm just going to touch on It's for the maintenance of civil order. The the second use of the law has to do with maintaining moral order in group situations. The magistrate can use the guidance of the law as he fulfills his duty of restraining evil. The magistrate points to the law and he says, no, you can't murder. No, you can't steal bicycles. No, you can't do these things. It's the magistrate's job just to make it safe for us to walk across town. And the second use of the law is that use of the law. You're not trying to get anybody into heaven. You're just trying to maintain public order. You're just maintaining public order. And that's why in, um, in 1 Timothy 1, nine it says the law is for the lawless. The law is for the outlaws. The law is for the bad guys. So the bad guys are restrained by the law. That's the second use of the law. The third use of the law helps the regenerate understand what love looks like. What does love look like in particular situations?
0: Okay, now... The civil law, okay? I, I believe the law clearly was used as a civil law under a theocracy. Now we could talk about the use of the law under a pluralistic, non theistic world view, right? Do we do we try to impose the scriptural mandate, the scriptural law as civil law upon a culture and a society that's not theistic, that's that's pluralistic and Offers freedom of religion to all people. Like that, that that gets into a whole discussion there. I think the I think there is I think there was an element of the law that was for civil and that was for Israel, and I think it was clearly there. Okay, because Jesus doesn't seem to call for the imposing of that civil law uh, to his disciples. Hey, we need to get the civil law back in play. He doesn't say. He says just submit to this pagan rulers. But, but that's a whole different discussion. Now he says the third one is the use of the law shows the regenerate what love is what is happening here what is happening here okay I, we're going i'm going to have to let him articulate this i'm going to have to let him expound this because i don't know exactly where this is going i'm a little i'm a little taken back by this one uh, so I, I don't know let, let, let's see let's see let's see here we go
1: And in this sense, the law is a guide for us in our sanctification. The law is a guide for us in our sanctification. So if you look at Romans uh, 13, in Romans 13, uh, 8 through 10, it says this. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So this is guidelines on what love looks like. This is guidelines on... uh, How how do we put feet on our love for one another? For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is talking to Christians. This is talking to people who have already gone through the experience the rich young ruler went through. They've already repented. They've already abandoned every hope of saving themselves. They've thrown themselves on the mercy of God. And they've been forgiven for all their sins, past, present, and future. You are justified. You are clean. You are right before God. And you've still got 20 years to live on this planet and you've got other people that you have to interact with now because you've got 20 years or 30 years or 50 whatever it is you have to deal with other people and you need to know what love looks like right and love is defined by the law love is uh, the definition of love is filled out by the law so to take a simple example you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower you're mowing you're mowing your lawn and it blows up right. While you're mowing and you don't think you did it. It wasn't. You just were mowing for 10 minutes and it blows up. What does love look like? Well, if you rented the lawnmower from your neighbor, you say, sorry about the. Here's your lawnmower back. If you didn't rent it, you just borrowed it and it blows up. You give your neighbor a lawnmower. That's or you try to. If he's if he's letting love be defined by the law, he's going to have, he's going to be pursuing it another way. Two Christians going through the door, right? You first. No, you first. No, no, you first. Nobody ever goes through the door. But you know, you know that what, because the law of God says, basically, if you borrow your neighbor's mule and, and the animal dies while you're using it, then you restore the mule to your neighbor. That love is defined by the law. So that's the third use. The third use is for the regenerate. The first use is for the unregenerate to make them aware of their need for salvation. The second has to do with civil order. And the third has to do with your sanctification, your walk
0: Okay, I kind of understand he's just phrasing it in a different way. I think what he's basically saying is the law serves as a guide to right and wrong for the believer, for the regenerate. I I got no problem with that. Now, he's borrowing from Romans 13 that... Love fulfills the law because, well, the law calls us to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourself. So, yes, it I guess in that sense, it does define how we should act in love because love is the fulfillment of the law. I got that. Okay, so it does guide us. It does direct us. We are to consider it. We are to pursue it. Now, I still think this is very important, that even though we are to pursue it, It does guide us. It does direct us. It does tell us how we should think and how we should live at the exact same time. It is still condemning us. It is still convicting us and it still will demonstrate over and over and over our inability to ever get it right anywhere close to the way we are supposed to. Because every time we are, like the law says this is how we are to love, we will demonstrate over and over and over that we love self above everything else. And that typically what we love is we love others who provide something for us. So I will argue that the law can be a, it is a guide, and it does direct, and it may even show us what love is. But it, at the same time, it will demonstrate our inability, because that inability is not taken away in salvation. The inability persists because we still have a sinful nature, all right? So, all right, that so far, so I, I understand what he's saying. I would just add that little extra to it to bring the inability that he mentioned in the first. And guess what? That inability of the first comes over to the second. If you want to use God's law as civil law, the people are not going to keep it. Read your Old Testament. Nobody did, okay? And if you bring it over to the third use for the regenerate saying, here's what we're supposed to do, we're still not going to keep it. The the bottom line is, No one's ever going to keep God's law because we cannot, because it's God's law, which is purely, pure, holy, and demands perfection internally and externally. We're going to fall short because we all have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature is not eradicated when one becomes a believer
1: with God now you can see I I hope you can see how individuals who are jealous for the purity of the first use of the law would be suspicious of those who make much of the third use all right, if Christians are talking about, oh well we ought, we ought to do this for our neighbor because, because Deuteronomy says, and some Christians who are zealous for evangelism are going to say, what are you quoting Deuteronomy for? People are going to think if, if you urge them to love and good works, they're going to think that they're earning their salvation by love and good works. No. No, of course not. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we are not saved by our good works before, during, or after any of this. But Ephesians two ten, the very next verse says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to them. We're not saved by the law in the first use of the law, but we are saved to the third use of the law. And this is just another way of saying that Christians are freed up by their justification, by their salvation, by their conversion. They are freed up to love one another. And love has boundaries. Love has definitions.
0: Now, when you say freed up, I need you to define freed up. I got no problem saying we are not saved by the law or we're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. I got no problem saying that I am saved unto, that now that I'm saved, I am to pursue, follow, desire, want. I got no problem with that. I got no problem saying that because, yes, the law is still there. As, I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Do this, don't do this, do this, do that. I got no problem with that. It's there. I am convicted by it every day. I would only add that the law, even for the third use, will still condemn because we're going to fall short and we're still going to have to rely on Christ. Now, when you say that my in my justification, I'm freed up to love, are you saying that in my justification, I now have been given the ability to... To love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, and love my neighbor as myself? Are you saying now I possess an ability that I did not previously possess? That's where then the argument would ensue. Let's see where he's going to go.
1: Love is not a shapeless, inchoate mass. So, what do we do when when you're talking... uh, with other believers, and someone says, well, I believe in a law gospel hermeneutic, or I I believe that we should have an understanding that some parts of the Bible are law and some parts of the Bible are grace. There are some believers who do want to think in terms of a law gospel hermeneutic, and I think that this leads us up a, a blind alley. I think we're going to find ourselves entangled in a host of confusions if we do this.
0: Okay, 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 okay. Now he's going after someone like me, right? As someone from, uh, from, or, or from Lutheranism. Clearly they hold it to a law gospel hermeneutic. He's saying that if we follow a law gospel hermeneutic, we're gonna end up uh, down a blind, blind alley. Oh boy, I, I need, I need to hear this, right? Because I don't want to end up in a blind alley. So if you've been listening to me, we spent over a hundred hours working on law, gospel. Now we have someone saying, no, 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 no. If you follow that hermeneutic, you're going to end up in a blind alley. Now, once again, this is the never ending, perpetual frustration I have in the world of theology and Christianity because everyone tells everyone else that they're wrong, right? So I believe clearly in a law gospel hermeneutic. Clearly do I believe. In fact, I believe the Bible can't even be correctly understood without it. He believes, no, 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 no. You follow that hermeneutic, you end up in a blind alley. Radically different approaches. All right? So, all right? Yeah, so black black versus white is confusing. It, 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 It can be very confusing in this particular case because... I mean, radically different approach. So I I need to understand his approach. He thinks my approach is completely wrong. Okay, I'm willing to hear his approach. He doesn't want me to take a law gospel hermeneutic. So what does he want to offer up as a alternative to the law gospel hermeneutic? I want to know. I really do. I really do because I'm willing to set aside. I'm, I'm holding a booklet right here. I'm going to pretend that this is my law gospel hermeneutic. I'm going to set it aside. And I want to hear what he wants me to replace it with. What is it? I really want to know. Let's find
1: out. Hermeneutic is a big word, um, like delicatessen. Right. <laughs> big words shouldn't be scary, right? A hermeneutic, a hermeneutic simply tells you, uh, it, it describes your pattern of interpreting a text. So what is your hermeneutic? How do you, how do you interpret the text? Do you-
0: I just find it hilarious. I do. That, again, within the non-Catholic system, sometimes what we do seems to call into question if we really believe our own system. Remember, within the Protestant system, there is no magisterial authority. The church doesn't have the authority. The church does not define doctrine. The church is not the one who ultimately makes the determination. The people in the pew, with their Bible, they listen, and they determine whether the preaching is true or false. They determine what is right and wrong. Well, if if, if you're going to say the people in the pew possess said power, then why do you have, why one any time the pastor preaches on hermeneutics, he has to say, it's not a scary word, and let me explain what it is. The people in the pew should be et- Experts on hermeneutics since they're the one judging the sermon how can you judge a sermon if you don't even know what the word hermeneutics means (laughs) so either we don't truly believe the people in the pew have said authority and power or we believe the people in the pew have said power and authority and they don't even need to read a hermeneutics textbook they don't even need to know what hermeneutics is. So on one hand, the church treats the people like, you don't really know these big words. Let me break it down to you. On the other hand, while you're breaking it down to them, they're the ones sitting there with a notebook going, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. So I don't know which one it is sometimes. Our system is so confusing to me. No, the church is not in uh, uh, the authority. No, there is no magisterial authority, magisterial authority. There is no pope. I listen, and I determine if what is being preached is true or false. Okay, well, then that makes you the authority. And if you're the authority, should you not have some area of expertise when it comes to biblical interpretation? Like, I don't know, hermeneutics? I don't know. But I digress.
1: To interpret it in a historical grammatical way do you interpret the text in an allegorical way how do you interpret it that that's what hermeneutic refers to now when some christians refer to a law gospel hermeneutic what they're what they're saying is that i think that certain passages are just law and other passages are just grace So the word hermeneutic has to do with how we interpret a text like the scriptures. And so what this means is that they want some passages in the Bible to be law, pure and simple, condemning us in our sin, and other passages to be gospel, offering us a gracious way out of our bondage to sin. But this won't do. We couldn't really color code a special edition of the Bible. uh, You've seen different study Bibles with color codes for different, you know, prophecy texts or whatever. Uh, We couldn't color code a special edition of the Bible in law gospel categories because a bunch of passages, and I would submit that all of them are doing double duty. All of them can be one thing or another depending on what circumstance you're in. What is more law like than the Ten Commandments? What is more law-like than the Ten Commandments? And how do the Ten Commandments begin? And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what color is that?
0: What do you mean, what color is that? When the passage tells you what God has done for you, that is gospel. And then immediately when it goes to the next verse and says, do this, that is law. Like, I don't understand. Like, he's like creating a straw man here. Oh, look at this. Look at the Right there at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. God tells us what he did for them. What, what color is that? This is so complicated. It's simple. <laughs> if the passage says what God has done for you, it's gospel. If the passage tells you what you must do, it's law. This is pretty simple because in a Lutheran church, when, when the kids go through confirmation, one of the things they have to do, at least in some Lutheran churches, is they have to demonstrate that they listened to the sermon on Sunday and they could demonstrate which part of the text was law, which part of the text was gospel. It's not that complicated. All right. Um, I, someone just asked, is he saying the Ten Commandments are gospel? Let's hope he isn't. Let's hope he's not. I think what he's trying to do is like, well, that first verse, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, I think what he's trying to say is, well, this seems to be where he's going. That, Uh, verse one. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the, uh, out of the house of bondage. Now that ends in a period, but I think it's what he's saying. If you start the Ten Commandments with a verse that is gospel, then you can't say the next one is law. And I don't know where he's coming up with said rule. One verse can be gospel. The very next verse can be law. And I will argue that in one verse, you could have a gospel portion and a law portion. All you need to do to draw the distinction is which part emphasizes what God has, is, or will do for you, and which part of the passage emphasizes what you are called to do. The part that emphasizes God's action for you or on your behalf is gospel, and the part of the passage that emphasizes what you must do is law. It's not that complicated. He's trying to act like this these people confuse it so much. It's not that confusing. So so far, he's not even given me an alternative yet. He's not even given me an alternative yet. He's simply criticizing it by claiming that it's too complicated, it's too convoluted, but he's not yet even come close to demonstrating how it's complicated and convoluted. Because when I was a Lutheran, I saw little kids being able to draw the distinction between, well, that says what God did, and that says what we do. So if kids in confirmation class in a Lutheran church can pull it off, I'm pretty sure Douglas Wilson can pull it off.
1: All right, is that Grace? I brought you out of the land of bondage. I brought, I brought you out of bondage. I destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. I split the sea for you. I had millions of you march through the sea. I delivered you. I saved you. And then I started raining bread out of the sky on you. All right? I delivered you from Egypt. Is that law? No. That's grace. Grace, grace, more grace. And it's in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. That's uh, that. What's so? What color? If I had blue for law and red for grace, what color is that?
0: You just identified it. It's gospel. It's grace. What do you mean? It ends in a period. Okay. What? What, what, do you, like, what, what color? What color? Well, first of all, we don't have to use color coding. But if you want to use color, co- 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 color coding, let me help you. If you're going to say blue is gospel, verse two. Is gospel, verse 3, would be red if you're going to use red for law. It's not really that complicated. (laughs) Don't use a law gospel hermeneutic because it is so confounding and confusing. Well, he just clearly demonstrated which part is gospel. I'm not... I, I I can help you come up with better arguments against it than this. If this is your if this is your <laughs> number one argument, okay, then I'm going to go over here and pick up my law gospel hermeneutic and I'm going to bring it back right now. I'm, no, I'm going to leave it. Down. I'm going I'm going to lay it. I'm going to lay it to the side. Okay, I got to wait for some more reasons why this is such a horrible hermeneutical approach.
1: I can't I can't color it one way or the other. And but it gets more complicated. Here's an odd statement about the law from the Old Testament. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what color is that? This law passage is great a grace passage. The law- now,
0: I do agree. You could say, well, the law converts the soul. Is the law a part of conversion? Well, it is because there is no conversion without first acknowledging your sin. The law convicts you so that you can be sin. And the law there, is it not just a reference to God's revelation in general? Is it only, is that term only speaking of? Psalm 19 is speaking about God's word, right? All of God's word? Is law there being used in a very specific, technical way that that's only referring to the things that says what we're supposed to do? Or is it just referring in a generic way to God's revelation? But I will say law is a part, law is a part of conversion. You can't be converted apart from law because loss is the first step. It shows you your need of grace, right? So I I don't know. I will agree that that one's a little bit more confusing than the first. The first attempt did not make any sense. This one makes a little bit more sense. So I understand why it could be a little com- uh, confusing, but I will argue, I don't care which hermeneutical system you all g- apply, you will always find text where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. So if you're going to throw out a hermeneutical system because one text presents a problem, I don't know if you're going to have a hermeneutical system left.
1: The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul and what is more gracious what is more gracious than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ what is more gracious than a proclamation of the death of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world what's more gracious than that And what does Paul say about it in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16? He says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish to the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? So you come to someone who is not elect. You come to someone who's reprobate. You come to someone who hates God, hates the way of righteousness. They hate. The, they. They. They don't just hate the Ten Commandments. They hate the gospel. They hate the cross. You bring the message of the cross, which is grace, right? It's pure grace. You bring that message to them, and it is the aroma of death unto death. One layer of death and then another layer of death. He's
0: obviously never studied basic books on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Hey, C.F.W. Walther would be a good place to start. You wouldn't, If someone who hates the law and hates it, you don't present the gospel to them. You present the law to them. That That's like a major part. Remember, we've talked about this in our hundred hours plus of studying the proper distinction between the laws. What are you even talking about? Someone who hates the law, you don't present the gospel to them. They need the law. Someone who is crushed by the law, you present the gospel to. That's the whole reason the hermeneutic exists. Oh, I can't stand when someone criticizes a theological system without clearly even bothering to try to figure out and understand. CFW Walther is like, I mean, that's like the primer of the proper distinction between law and gospel. I mean, even if you don't go through his full lectures, you could go through God's no, God's yes. I mean, that's a basic, just a, that's like, you know, C-spot run level of understanding of law and gospel. You could at least take a little bit of time to at least understand that the proper distinction also involves when to provide law or when to provide gospel that has been a major part of all of the theses that we've covered so far using CFW Walther.
1: And what I just quote, what I just declared to them is gospel, salvation, the offer, the free, the free offer of the gospel. I've offered them forgiveness, and it's death. So, what color is that passage? You can't color code the, you know, you, you can't color code the Bible and break it. If the
0: passage speaks of what God has done for us, then it's gospel. It's not that hard. It, it, it doesn't become law because those who hate The gospel will still hate it, and it's almost death to them. That doesn't change whether something is gospel. Gospel is determined is, does it describe what God has done for us? What God has done? If you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that is clearly gospel. But if I present that to someone and they hate it or it's death to them, that doesn't change that it's gospel. It just shows that the gospel is not going to be of any impact to them until they first are crushed by the law, meaning they need the law and not the gospel. I don't understand. That's not even confusing. It's not even difficult. It just requires a basic understanding of the basic elements of the gospel. So your number one and your number three argument is useless, worthless, and you're just trying to create a straw man. Your second one, I will give you a little bit, that, yeah, that could be a little bit confusing because it says the law converts the soul. I'm willing to accept that one's a little difficult. The first and the last I mean, you're, you're literally ignoring the basic concept of the entire concept.
1: Out ...neatly into law passages and grace passages. So what's going on? What is going on here? This tells us, I, I believe there is a fundamental law gospel divide. There is a fundamental law gospel division. But this tells us that the law-gospel divide is not to be found in the text of Scripture. It is found in the difference between one kind of human heart and another kind of human heart. It's found between the, the regenerate and the unregenerate. For the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. If, if someone's born again, if the Spirit of God has moved in your heart, if the Spirit of God has quickened you, if the Spirit of God has brought you to life, then absolutely everything your loving Father says and does is precious to you. It's grace. It's undeserved grace. Oh, boy, you look at the laws. Oh, boy, he's, now he's telling me how I should live. Oh, boy, now he's telling me how I should how I can love him more adequately. Now he's telling me how I can love my neighbor. And look at this. More information. Oh, good. Law. Yay. <laughs> Right. But
0: that is just not true. That is not true at all. You can be saved and still look at the law and go, woe is me. I am undone. I will not do this. And sometimes they say, I don't even want to hear it. I don't like it. To say that anyone who is saved is just going to be like, oh, the law is just precious to them. The law is just, that is ridiculous. If you're saying it's impossible to distinguish when the text is law and gospel, but now you're saying the way to distinguish it is if a saved person reads the law, they're like, this is wonderful. This is precious. I love this. Give me more. Well, then I guess there's not a lot of saved people because if anyone who's even remotely honest with themselves will time and time again going, oh man. Oh, more law. I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm so weary. I'm so tired. No, I need the gospel. (laughs) The gospel says, I've done it for you. What, what is precious is the gospel. What is always condemning and overwhelming and can be a burden is the law. I do agree that as a Christian, we do. There's going to be a part of us that wants the law and love the law to some level. But there's going to, look, if we're going to be honest, our sinful nature at times is going to be like, I don't want it. I don't like it. And I don't love it.
1: Who, who does that? A regenerate heart does that. And then... You come to an unregenerate heart and says, let me tell you how you can be liberated from your bondage to self. And the unregenerate heart says, but I don't want to be liberated from bondage to self. I love me. I love me first. And he's going to keep saying that unless God reaches into his heart and takes away his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. And then he will say thank you.
0: There you have it. He just now, once again, this is where Christianity cannot keep itself from doing this. He now just said that in salvation, now he's borrowing language from the Old Testament, which speaks of the covenant with Israel. He's now taken that language and he's applying it to salvation for you. So that in salvation, your, your depraved heart has been now changed. And now you have a heart of flesh. Well, then guess what? That means you can be sinless. No, your sinful nature is still there and you still love self. I am so tired of Christians constantly selling this nonsense that when you get saved, the old man is gone. The old heart is gone. You now have a new nature. The old nature is gone. And you can do it, ladies and gentlemen. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Well, nobody does it. The sinful heart remains. The sinful nature remains, which demonstrates and proves why 2,000 years of church history and what have we seen in the church? Sin, 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 sin. From the pulpit, to the pew, to the Sunday school room, to the, to the nursery, to the elementary class, sin, 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 because it's all a bunch of depraved people who believe in Christ, who are saved by grace alone, by an imputed righteousness, who still possesses a sinful nature.
1: Right? God has to do the initial regeneration. We don't we don't operate we don't twiddle any knobs, we don't operate any levers to get God to regenerate us. When we are when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2, when we are slaves to sin as it says in Romans chapter 6, we are stuck there unless God unilaterally on his own speaks the word and we are quickened. All right, so when Jesus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the, the dead, that resurrection was not a cooperative effort. Jesus wasn't pulling and Lazarus pushing. Lazarus didn't contribute anything whatever to the resuscitation of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He didn't do anything. And Jesus spoke the word, And Lazarus came to life, and then Lazarus did something, then he came out of the tomb. He came out of the tomb just as Jesus wanted him to do, just as you love your neighbor after you're, after you're born again, you love your neighbor, and after you're born again, you want to know how to love your neighbor better, and so you're hungry for God's word. But before that, you're going to hate all of it. You're going to hate the command to rise up and be forgiven. You're going to hate all of it until you're actually in possession of a new life.
0: I have seen lost people love their neighbor far better than I've seen Christians. <laughs> oh, we love this story, don't we? It's so built into the DNA of the church. You get you get power! Dun 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 dun! You become a superhero! I can do it! I can leap tall buildings in a single leap. I can I can run faster than a locomotive. I can stop bullets. We think we could just, we're still sinners. We don't love people anywhere close to the way we're supposed to love people. We don't love God. We love self. The sinful nature still is present. And if you're going to say we get a new heart, well, then the old heart still is there. The old nature is still there. Remember, we've talked about how do you divide them? How, how many parts do we have? Do we have a new heart, old heart, new nature, old nature? Is the heart and the nature. the same? We've talked about all of this before. He's going down the same path that this always goes. Let's see if we can find a stopping point.
1: New heart. So, for the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. All of it is grace. For the unregenerate, the whole thing is the stench of death. Everything is the stench of death, including the good news of Christ on the cross. Including the good news of Christ on the cross. All of it is law and condemnation.
0: Now, I will say, to the lost, all of it is—they is, is, don't like any of it. I do agree that there's an element of truth to that. I do agree. But I to say— that for a saved person, that the every the law is always gonna be precious and wonderful? No, it's convicting and it condemns and it hurts and it stabs and it humiliates and it shames. The gospel is always sweet to us. But we'll stop right there. And that concludes. I, I I, I wish we could finish it, but it's already 3.40 almost, so I've got to get ready for church tonight. So um we'll stop right there, and uh, unfortunately, we'll have to come back. I always hate—that's that's why I, sometimes I'm hesitant when you send me sermon reviews, because they always turn into multiple parts, but we don't have a lot left, so hopefully we can finish this tonight. I, I know that disconnect always ruins it to some level, because now coming back in, it's always difficult, but we'll find a good starting point this evening, and we'll try to—, to 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 uh uh we'll we'll try our best to to fix this uh, tonight and make it make sense. But so far there's really nothing unique about this. This is a standard evangelical approach. You get saved, you now have magic power. You have supernatural power and you can do it. Now Obviously, at some point, he would have to argue, there's Christians sometimes they don't seem to love the law and they can convicted. By, like he, he's not bothering to even, uh, uh, it, it's almost as if everyone gets saved and dun dun, 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 they can now keep it. They can love. They can do it. They're obedient. They're do it. They can do it and they all love it and everything's wonderful. But we know that that's not the way it works. But I, we never want to acknowledge that reality. And we always want to create this picture of a fake reality. I always say it's a Christianity we sell that has no at- connection to the reality that people actually Live. But you can tell me what you think. Email me news if at yahoo.com. That's news i f yahoo.com News i f at yahoo.com. That was 82 minutes. Hopefully something in those 82 minutes were beneficial. Email me news iF at yahoo.com. And if you want to hear a more further distinction of law and gospel, well, I'm going to place this in that series on law and gospel. But go listen to the whole thing because it's like over a hundred hours of teaching on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And it's not near as complicated as he pretended that it was to now get into what I guess he thinks is now so easy to understand. The distinction between law and gospel depends on the heart. I don't think it's that simple. But You can tell me, all right? Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. We'll be back live streaming at 7 p.m. tonight from Victory Baptist Church, which is located in the middle of nowhere. And then hopefully as soon as I get home, I'll take a break and then we'll try to finish up this review, all right? So, So that tomorrow everything will be finished. That's the plan. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.